and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in this episode I'm joined by one of the few authors to have had three novels on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. Her books include The Girl You Left Behind and The One Plus One. And her novel Me Before You was adapted into a feature film with Game of Thrones star Amelia Clark. She joins us right here in the Penguin studio to talk about her new novel Still Me. It's the fantastic Jojo Moyes. Jojo, welcome. Well, hello. Hello indeed. And as always, we ask all of our guests that they bring in a few objects that have shaped and influenced their life and writing. And Jojo has very kindly complied. And we'll find out what her special items are shortly. We first met the character Lou Clark in Me Before You, the book that really thrust you into the spotlight. Now, for those of you who haven't read it, can you give us a sort of brief overview or synopsis? It's basically the story about a young woman leading a very ordinary small town life in a small village in England. She's perfectly content. She's been going out with the same guy for seven years. She's very low ambition and she loses her job and is forced pretty much into a job as a carer working for a man who has lost the use of his arms and legs after a catastrophic accident. And he was somebody who led a huge life. This is Will Trainer, And he's very angry with his lot. And it's about what happens when these two people are forced into close proximity. She is his carer. And how they change each other's lives and what happens when she discovers what he secretly intends to do. And Still Me is the third Lou Clark book. Yes, and so- final one. Ah. She says with trepidation. Yeah. Are you sure? Once I knew I was going to write a sequel to Me Before You, I knew it was books two and three because it followed a shape that I had in my head. Mm. And I'm worried that if I went beyond that, people would think I was just kind of using her. So tell us, where do we find her now? It's a completely new setting. It's in New York, which is, as you know, the kind of fastest city on earth. So it's really about her moving to a new city, trying to juggle her relationship with Ambulance Sam, who she met in After You. And what happens when you try and live a life kind of in two places and the family that she goes to work for, as with all families, turns out to be not quite what you see on the surface. So Mm. that gets very complicated. And there is a, a man she meets in New York who looks and seems very like Will, which is also quite destabilising. So there's a lot going on. Well, we're going to talk more about Lou in just a moment. But first up, let's dip into the beginning of the audiobook of Still Me, written by my guest Jojo Moyes and read by Anna Acton. It was the moustache that reminded me I was no longer in England. A solid grey millipede firmly obscuring the man's upper lip. A village people moustache. A cowboy moustache. The miniature head of a broom that meant business. You just didn't get that kind of moustache at home. I couldn't tear my eyes from it. Ma'am? The only person I had ever seen with a moustache like that at home was Mr Naylor, our maths teacher. And he collected digestive crumbs in his. We used to count them during algebra. Ma'am. Oh, sorry. The man in uniform motioned me forward with a flick of his stubby finger. He did not look up from his screen. I waited at the booth, long hall sweat drying gently into my shirt. He held up his hand, waggling four fat fingers. This, I grasped after several seconds, was a demand for my passport. Name. It's there, I said. Your name, ma'am. Louisa Elizabeth Clark. I peered over the counter, though I never used the Elizabeth bit, because my mum realised after they named me that that would make me Lou Lizzie, 
And if you say that really fast, it sounds like lunacy. Though my dad says that's kind of fitting. <laughs> Not that I'm a lunatic. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't want lunatics in your country. <laughs> my voice bounced nervously off the perspex screen. The man looked at me for the first time. He had solid shoulders and a gaze that could pin you like a taser. He did not smile. He waited until my own faded. Sorry, I said. People in uniform make me nervous. That was an extract from Still Me by Jojo Moyes, who's my guest in the Penguin studio today. Is that the first time you've heard the audio? It is. And ah. the weirdest thing about listening to audio is that you often forget, as a writer, what happens next. <laughs> it's so different when somebody else is performing it. I become entranced and I think she's brilliant. And do you find that Lou's voice is sort of always with you? Are you ever sort of in a scenario in life and then you think, what would Lou do in this situation? It's so easy for me to imagine. And this really isn't true of many characters that mm. you create. But I found with Will and Lou that as soon as I started writing them, I could put them in any situation imaginary or I could put them here now and I know exactly how each of them would react to you. I know how they would react to each other in They'd the situation. Like me, wouldn't they? Of course they would love you. Um, I think there might be a bit of eye rolling from Will who would want to be going off to do something else and Louisa <laughs> would probably have disrupted the lamp and um, you know knocked over the earphones and would be totally entranced. So yeah. Well look, as promised you've brought in a number of objects that have inspired you. So we're going to kick off with object number 1 which is I'm going to start with Big Dog. Okay. Big dog. I couldn't bring Big Dog in because she's my rescue dog. She is Aww. a great Pyrenean and she weighs 55 kilos. And standing up, she's basically a polar bear. We Aww. got her two and a bit years ago from a local rescue centre because they couldn't find a home for her because she was too big and too old. And everybody knows that nobody wants a big old dog because it's basically all your vet's fees forever and ever. <laughs> and I sort of agreed to take her on and then got her in the back of the car which took two of us carrying her I've never tried to do that again because you know now we've we've imported a ramp um, to get her in and out of the back of the car and this poor dog cried the whole way it was an hour's drive back to my house and she just cried in the oh. back of the car because she'd been fostered to so many places that she just assumed she was being moved on again and it took a year for her to start wagging her tail and then another year for her to suddenly show that she has this amazing sense of humour. And apart from my children and my direct family, she is the absolute love of my life. I was totally unprepared for the feelings that this dog would instil in me. Oh. You know, my kids send pictures of her just to torment me when I'm away because they know that it'll just make me cry. <laughs> she, when I get back, she literally, she, it's like she can't get enough of you. She just these big soulful eyes look at you and she just sits there with her head on your lap just saying, please don't leave me again. You just gelled. Yeah. Well, Lou starts gelling in the book with the dog. I don't want to give too much away. No. But she is a sort of caring person. And so with that sort of caring for animals, caring for people, mm. is that a sort of you trait? Perhaps? Yeah, and I'm sure that... Dean Martin, the little dog in the mm -hmm. book, is, while nothing like Big Dog, is definitely kind of... She's pro he's probably out of my subconscious in terms of the joy I get from having a, an animal with me at all times. Also, Lou has a boss that she sort of feels a bit of a sympathy for mm. and a sort of kinship. They're both immigrants, mm -hmm. sort of other in an insular world of high society, a bit of an outsider. Yeah. Do you think that you're quite drawn to writing about outsiders and why do you think that is? For me, I've never had like a big gang. I wasn't one of these people at school who was in the centre of things. 
I really love watching people. That's the bottom line. I mean, I, I would like to say it's a sort of scientific analysis of people's <laughs> behaviour. Other people might call it nosiness. I am drawn to outsiders because I think they're just generally more interesting. I'm always interested by people who've had to endure things in their life, whether it be, you know things that they've gone through as a child or whether it's simply separation from everything that they love. And I think the immigrant experience at the moment has never been more important to understand and recognise. And I suppose some of this book probably subconsciously was written as a reaction to political events, which is it's very easy to dismiss people as other if we don't recognise them, if we don't Mm. recognise them from how we live. But what happens with Louisa is that, you know, she recognises that you have all these people living in this apartment block, leading enormous lives of privilege, but all actually quite unhappy in their own way and with no interaction between any of them other than complaints about encroachment of space or noise or or whatever, which is, I think, how a lot of us live in cities. And when you break down those barriers and you stop seeing someone as other and start recognising that there are possibly experiences that might even link you, you know, everybody gets happier. It just makes life better. And I think what Lou's great skill is in life is being a facilitator of those sorts of communications. Yeah, and it's interesting in that, like you're saying, these people are living alongside each other, not Mm. interacting much. And then a lot of the sort of people like Lou and Ashok that are working there, they are immigrants Mm. and actually they're the ones that are all bonding and yeah everybody in in the Gopnik family is struggling with their own issues and their place within the family and as you say the people who work for them are just getting on with it and kind of having a laugh and actually perhaps just accepting people for what they see at face value you know what is their behavior rather than what they mean in Mm. terms of status or threats to themselves yeah for Anyone who doesn't know, the Gopniks are a family that Louisa is working for in her move to New York. And Lou is confidant, assistant and also sort of friend to Mrs Gopnik. And it's kind of tricky relationship, isn't it? Yeah, because as Nathan says at one point, you know, they act like they're your friend, but they have the ability to fire you tomorrow. I mean, Agnes, Mrs Gopnik, is... Louisa's age, she's married this man who is immensely wealthy, who has got rid of his first wife in a sort of fairly undignified manner. He's not going to be frozen out of high society because he's too important. But the wives of the rest of the society that they mix in are under no compunction to make Agnes feel welcome and they, they are freezing her out. So Louisa is really employed to be as you say, her friend. And at first she thinks this is marvellous because she can change this woman's life and she Mm. can cheer her up and she can... Do her Lou Clark magic. Exactly, and make, you know, help her get through these terrible charitable events that are kind of full of subtle social put-downs that often only the women can see. You know, I think women are very good at picking up at signals that often Mm. men can be oblivious to. But these things are never black and white and as their relationship deepens... Louisa realises that Agnes is complicated, that the situation is complicated and that their relationship is not as simple as a straightforward friendship with some money involved. It involves obligation, it involves duplicity and there's some power involved in there as well. Well, on that note, let's go to another extract from Still Me by Jojo Moyce, who joins me here in the Penguin Studio. And in this bit, Lou realises exactly how many people it takes to run an Upper East Side Manhattan home. 
Alongside Nathan and George the trainer, who also came every weekday morning, the other people who passed through the apartment that first week were the cleaners. Apparently, there was a distinction between what Alaria did, housekeeping, and actual cleaning. Twice a week, a team of three liveried women and one man blitzed their way through the apartment. They did not speak, except to consult briefly with each other. Each carried a large crate of eco-friendly cleaning materials, and they were gone three hours later, leaving Alaria to sniff the air and run her fingers along the skirting disapprovingly. The florist, who arrived in a van on Monday morning and brought enormous vases of arranged blooms to be placed at strategic intervals in the communal areas of the apartment. Several of the vases were so large that it took two to carry them in. They removed their shoes at the door. The gardener. Yes, really. This at first made me slightly hysterical. You do realise we're on the second floor. Until I discovered that the long balconies at the back of the building were lined with pots of miniature trees and blossoms, which the gardener would water, trim and feed before disappearing again. It did make the balcony look beautiful. But nobody ever went out there, except me. The Pet Behaviourist A tiny bird-like Japanese woman appeared at 10am on a Friday, watched Felix at a distance for an hour or so, then examined his food, his litter tray, the places he slept, quizzed Alaria on his behaviour and advised on what toys he needed or whether his scratching post was sufficiently tall and stable. Felix ignored her for the entire time she was there, breaking off only to wash his bottom with what seemed like almost insulting enthusiasm. The grocery team came twice a week and brought with them large green crates of fresh food, which they unpacked under Alaria's supervision. I caught sight of the bill one day. It would have fed my family and possibly half my postcode for several months. And that was without the manicurist, the dermatologist, the piano teacher, the man who serviced and cleaned the cars, the handyman who worked for the building and sorted out replacement light bulbs or faulty air conditioning. There was the stick-thin red-headed woman who brought large shopping bags from Bergdorf, Goodman or Saks Fifth Avenue and viewed everything Agnes tried on with a gimlet eye, stating, No, no, no. Oh, that's perfect, honey. That's lovely. You want to wear that with the little Prada bag I showed you last week. So in that clip, Lou views the demands of the Gopnik family with wonder. How much do you find that the excesses of the super-rich bother you personally? Oh, gosh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Well, I I have spent some time in the homes of very rich people. I don't know if I'd say super rich, because to yeah. me that's like Roman Abramovich. <laughs> but the All thing the that seems to be pretty uniform is that everybody has people in their house all the time. And I find that quite a strange thing to have to live your life with probably 30% of you having to be aware of how you're behaving at all times. I so agree with you. Um, you know, the, the people doing the work are not expected to have opinions or I find it quite strange. And so I suppose I was looking at that through Louisa's eyes, that the idea of having this very complicated, endless stream of stuff going on in your yeah. house. Yeah, I hear you. I totally do. Lou has found herself in a job where she's at the beck and call once yes. again of the privilege. Do you think it's a good way to sort of learn about the human condition when you're doing these invisible jobs? Oh, fascinating, because people drop their guard because they don't realise you're there. Because actually, 
in a lot of these places, you're not really a person, you don't count. And yes, so that affords you a degree of invisibility. And it's the driver who sort of points out to Louisa that she is going to be privy to lots of information Mm. that she's probably better off immediately forgetting. And that's another thing that I find fascinating, the way that the employees of very wealthy people are expected to somehow hold on to their secrets as well, because there will be secrets. In any family, there are secrets. Mm, I always think drivers here a lot. Yes, because they? we all drop our guard with a uh, with yeah. a driver. Yeah, because you're just sitting in the back chatting to yeah. your friend, and yeah. Oh. Let's move on to your next object. It's a bumblebee necklace. Yay! The bumblebee is the emblem of me before you and of Louisa Clark in general. Those who've read the book will know about her bumblebee tights, which return in a very crucial plot point in Still Me. And my husband bought me this little bee when me before you started filming and I wore it during the filming. And being on set with those people was the most hard-working, challenging environment I've ever been in. But I, I still think about it almost daily in terms of the impact it had and how much joy I got from it. And I absolutely loved it, so I love my little bee. Clothes are, and necklaces, accessories, Mm. they're a very important form of expression for Yes. For Louisa, and this was a really key point, and and it's why the, the bumblebee tights are so emblematic. For Louisa, clothes is how she expresses herself. It's not about attracting the male gaze. It's not about trying to be somebody, to be sexy or, you know, jaw droppingly gorgeous. It's about having fun and really just enjoying dressing up every day. And I think the th- the reason why the bumblebee tights were so important to me in terms of Louisa's character was there is no purer expression of dressing for yourself as a woman than wearing a pair of bumblebee tights. These are not for the guys. I mean, no, <laughs> no they, they do not like them. Wah. They do not say, <laughs> God, you look good in those tights. The thing about clothes, though, is that they say a lot, don't Mm -hmm. they? And and in the book, they highlight the gap between the super rich and everyone else. They're a really big theme. And they also managed to humiliate Lou's boss at one point. I don't want to give too much away. Yes. The Upper East Side is all about symbols of wealth. It's about symbols of taste and wealth. So if you get it even slightly wrong the others are going to know. And if you head into that world at a disadvantage, and everybody expects Agnes to be crass because of her background, Mm. so she's already slightly on the back foot. So for her, clothes are both armour and, I mean, she's stunning looking, so everything's going to look amazing on her. But she missteps at one of these events and she wears something that goes beyond what everybody else is wearing. And Mm. it's Louisa who has to sort of prop up her confidence. But they're also humiliating for Louisa because at one point she goes to somebody's works do and it becomes apparent very quickly that she's in the wrong gear. And I think most women have had an experience at some point of going somewhere and realising they've just got this slightly wrong. And if you're a particular kind of person, maybe you can just brave it out and not think about what you're wearing. But I would say for the majority of us, it is crushing because yeah, you, you spend the whole time yeah, feeling conscious rather mm. than just enjoying yourself. And I think that's a sort of particularly female trait because I've never heard a man say, oh, I was wearing slightly the wrong shoes and, you know, no. everybody looks at me. And nobody really judges them on it. No, compared no, you to can wear a women. suit every day. There was that great Australian newscaster who wore the same suit every day for a month 
to make a point because his female co-host was being judged relentlessly on what she wore and I thought god that's amazing I would love mm. to be able to wear a suit every day it would nothing would make me happier yeah and you know what's funny is because we say that's what a uniform does but in a way Lou is being judged for not being in the uniform yes, because this do what she wears shows immediately that she's not of yeah their grouping she's exactly not, she doesn't fit in as one of the American, you know, women says, you know, oh, I love British girls. Their their clothing choices are so interesting. Yeah, now, so eccentric. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, in this next clip from the audiobook of Still Me by Jojo Moyes, Lou finds herself being fitted for a last-minute ball gown. Half an hour later, I was standing in a changing room while two shop assistants pushed my bosoms into a strapless dress, the colour of unsalted butter. The last time I had been handled this intimately, I quipped, I had discussed getting engaged immediately afterwards. Nobody laughed. Agnes frowned. To bridle, it makes her look thick around the waist. That's because I am thick around the waist? We do some very good corrective panties, Mrs Garpnick. Oh, I'm not sure I... Do you have anything more 50s style? Said Agnes, flicking through her phone. Because this will pull in her waist and get around the height issue. We don't have time to take anything up. When is your event, ma'am? We have to be there at 7.30. We can alter the dress for you in time, Mrs Garpnick. I'll get Terry to deliver it over to you by six. Then let's try the sunflower yellow one. And uh, that one, with the sequins. If I'd known that the afternoon would be the one time in my life I would be trying on $3,000 dresses, I might have made sure I wasn't wearing comedy knickers with a sausage dog on them and a bra that was held together with a safety pin. I wondered how many times in one week you could end up exposing your breasts to perfect strangers. I wondered if they had seen a body like mine before, with actual fatty bits. The shop assistants were far too polite to comment on it, beyond repeatedly offering corrective underwear, but simply brought in dress after dress, wrestling me in and out like someone wrangling livestock. Until Agnes, sitting on an upholstered chair, announced, Yes, this is the one. Oh, what do you think, Louisa? It is even perfect length for you with the twill underskirt. I stared at my reflection. I wasn't sure who was staring back at me. My waist was nipped in by an inbuilt corset. My bosom hoisted upwards into a perfect embonpoint. The colour made my skin glow and the long skirt made me a foot taller and entirely unlike myself. The fact that I couldn't breathe was irrelevant. We will put your hair up and some earrings. Perfect. And this dress is 20% off, said one of the shop assistants. We don't sell much yellow after the Strager event each year. I almost deflated with relief. And then I gazed at the label. The sale price was $2,575, a month's wages. An extract there from Still Me by Jojo Moyes. Now, I wanted to talk about the role of charity in Still Me because there's mm -hmm. a sense of conspicuous society fundraising mm -hmm. as opposed to really trying to help people. And it's a cause of consternation for Lou, isn't it? Yeah, I think if you go to America with a sort of new eye, an alien eye, I think one of the things that does strike you pretty quickly is the way that philanthropy is a sort of big societal thing. So on the side of school buses, you can see this bus was donated by, you know, names of four donors, 
You can't go past a hospital without seeing the, you know, James R. Smith Memorial Hospital. And, you know, in some ways it's really admirable because I think their philanthropic tradition is much stronger than ours. They're, they generally give away a lot more if they're at the top of the wealth tree, if you like. But then they love their name. But they love their name. It. Yeah, there's no such thing as anonymous giving. No. You know, they want to be seen to be giving. And Louisa finds a cause which she thinks will not just kind of benefit society but will also help Agnes to kind of bond with the community and give her a purpose and Mr Gopnik is singularly uninterested because for him it's the wrong sort of charity and that sort of interests me as well because you know we're living in an age where a lot of charities are increasingly dependent on individuals to keep them going mm. and um, maybe maybe in Britain we should be following the American example and bigging up the donors. Yeah, PRing, that's the thing, exactly. it's a PR thing it to is. the donors, isn't it? So is it right that Jane Austen is one of your influences and like her, you use irony oh. to comment on society? Well, so. I'm immensely <laughs> flattered even to be mentioned in the same postcode as Jane Austen, but yeah, I suppose... The little earthquakes of the way people speak and deal with each other in small circles really fascinates me. I mean, the way women can support each other or crush each other with a couple of sentences mm. is endlessly fascinating to me because it's something that doesn't really exist in the same way in the male world. And I remember my husband once saying to me, like he'd had a eureka moment, that woman insulted you. And I was like, yeah. Well done, darling. <laughs> well done. Yeah. And he said, I didn't hear it before, and now I hear it. And it was like he'd discovered a new language. Yeah. And Austin was, of course, the absolute genius forerunner of that kind of linguistic mm. torment. Yes. Yeah, she was brilliant. OK, so on to your next object, which is under-eye concealer. Yes. Explain. I am... Pretty low maintenance in the appearance department. In fact, you and I did, as we met, exchange details of the fact that we'd both put our makeup on in the car on the way here. Um, no, I wasn't driving, I hasten to add. But under eye concealer is, for me, every day an absolute necessity because I am always tired. I am that boring person who wakes up going, I'm so tired, how am I going to get through the, the day? And it's tired for the best reasons in that I'm doing not just a job that I love but usually several jobs that I love at once and some of them are on the west coast so it means that I tend to stay up late in the evening talking on the phone or doing work but then my animals and my other life demand that I get up early so I keep telling myself that it's a temporary thing this looking like a sad horse but until I managed to wind it back a bit, then I am wedded to my concealer. Well, concealer is quite fitting, isn't it? Because people are literally covering up secrets all oh, over the nice place. Oh, nice link. Did you like the way of, you yeah, did I that? It was seamlessly done. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, what book would be worth reading if you didn't have layer upon layer? And mm. um, yes, everything looks hunky dory on the outside, but, you know, even the most perfect lives are usually kind of riddled with insecurity and anxiety and mishap underneath mm. and this family gilded as they are on the outside is no different absolutely right well let's get back to the audiobook of still me and in this clip lou finds she's getting into the swing of the wealthy new york life i upped my game i jogged with agnes and george every morning and some days i even managed to last the entire route without wanting to throw up I got to know the places that Agnes's routines took her to, what she was likely to need to have with her and where and bring home. 
I was ready in the hallway before she was there and had water, cigarettes or green juice ready for her almost before she knew she wanted them. When she had to go to lunch where the awful matrons were likely to be, I would make jokes beforehand to shake her out of her nerves and I would send her cell phone gifts of farting pandas or people falling off trampolines to pick up during the meal. I was there in the car afterwards and listened to her when she told me tearfully what they had said or not said to her, nodded sympathetically or agreed that, yes, they were impossible mean creatures, dried up like sticks, no heart left in them. I became good at maintaining my poker face when Agnes told me slightly too much about Leonard's beautiful, beautiful body and his many, many beautiful skills as a lover, and I tried not to laugh when she told me Polish words, such as kolanitsa, with which she insulted Ilaria without the housekeeper understanding. Agnes, I discovered, quite quickly, had no filter. Dad always said I used to say the first thing that came into my head, but in my case it wasn't bitter old whore in Polish, or can you imagine that horrible Susan Fitzwalter getting waxed would be like scraping the beard off a closed muscle. <clears throat> it wasn't that Agnes was mean per se. I think she felt under such pressure to behave in a certain way, to be seen and scrutinised and not found wanting, that I became a kind of safety valve. The moment she was out of their company, she would swear and curse, and then by the time Gary had driven us home, she would have recovered her equanimity in time to see her husband. So we've mentioned Jane Austen already and Marion Keyes, Lisa Jewell and yourself, that you're all writers that explore love and relationships. Do you feel books can have a healing power as such? Definitely. I mean, you know, when I've been at dark points in my life, I love rereading things that have strong women, women who can find a way through. You know, everybody thinks mm. of Scarlett O'Hara and Tomorrow's Another Day. I think fiction has huge things to teach us about recovery and bouncing back. And it's interesting, you know, for years I had so many emails from especially young women readers who really identified with things that Louisa was going through, whether it be the events of me before you or grief and its recovery in after you and fiction therapy yeah and in fact there's a whole little industry now called bibliotherapy which is people prescribing books to help with heartbreak or other issues in your life which i think is brilliant and so you've got another object here for us what is this it's a little wooden carving of a woman who has her head bent over onto her knees and she's sort of clutching her knees and it's only a couple of inches high and you can see her spine quite clearly. It's a beautiful little piece of carving and it's something that my grandfather made many, many years ago. He made it? He, he carved oh, wow. it. He was an incredibly artistic man and my earliest memories are of him making up these incredible stories, you know, while I sat on his knee and he would go off onto mad tangents. They were magical. He, he grew up in India and so I think he had just a very vivid imagination that was fueled by things he'd heard and grown up with around there. And he died when I was quite young. He died when I was 14. But I discovered lots of things about him and my grandmother after he died. And one of the things I discovered was that he was a naval commander, which I'd known, but that he had become very ill, trying to negotiate a settlement between the dockyards and the Navy. And I think he carved this woman who is bowed over with, I don't know what kind of a burden she's carrying at the time that he was this unhappy. And my grandmother was a great 
protector. She was an Australian, very fierce, loving, joyful woman. And so none of us really knew this because she wouldn't have let us know that he was unhappy and she just protected him. And again, I suppose in terms of going back to what we've been discussing, the thing that it speaks to me of is, you know, you can look at this man from the outside who was this incredibly erudite, upright, upper-middle-class naval commander, pillar of the community. But when I look at this statue, this little sculpture thing, what I see is the truth, which is this man who was gentle and artistic and and perhaps a little broken for a while by the demands of the world around him. You know, it just goes to show you, you just don't know what's going on in somebody's life. You never do. I'm sad to say it's the final extract now from the audiobook of Still Me, And in this clip, Lou learns some hard lessons in love. Here's the thing about jealousy. It's not a good look. And the rational part of you knows that. You are not the jealous sort. That sort of woman is awful. And it makes no sense. If someone likes you, they will stay with you. If they don't like you enough to stay with you, they aren't worth being with anyway. You know that. You are a sensible, mature woman of 28 years. You have read the self-help articles. You have watched Dr Phil. But when you live 3,500 miles from your handsome, kind, sexy paramedic boyfriend and he has a new partner who sounds and looks like pussy galore, a woman who spends at least 12 hours a day in close proximity to the man you love, a man who has confessed already to how hard he is finding the physical separation, then the rational part of you gets firmly squashed by the gigantic, squatting toad that is your irrational self. It didn't matter what I did. I couldn't scrub that image of the two of them from my mind. It lodged itself, a white-on-black negative, somewhere behind my eyes and haunted me. Her lightly tanned arm tight around his waist, her fingers resting lightly on the waistband of his uniform. Were they side by side at a late bar, her nudging him at some shared joke? Was she the kind of touchy-feely woman who would reach over and pat his arm for emphasis? Did she smell good? So that when he left her each day he would feel, in some indefinable way, he was missing something. I know this was the way to madness, yet I couldn't stop myself. I thought about calling him, but nothing says stalky, insecure girlfriend like someone who calls you at 4am. My thoughts whirred and tumbled and fell in a great toxic cloud and I hated myself for them. And they whirred and fell some more. Oh, why couldn't you just have been partnered with a nice fat man? I murmured to the ceiling. And sometime in the small hours, I finally fell asleep. An extract there from Still Me by Jojo Moyes. Now, you did mention that you were a journalist for 10 years before Mm. writing novels. How did that move come about? Mostly because I had children. (laughs) Uh, You can't work in a newsroom if you have small babies because, you know, small children need routines and parents, really. (laughs) (laughs) So the move came about literally because you were sort of, I've got... Young children and I can't no, go I mean, it, the it, I, I had always written half novels and things that never quite made it into print. And mm-hmm. I'd actually been working nights as a news reporter for a couple of years. And because most of my friends were working days, that did leave me a chunk of the day when I was completely alone. I decided to just try and see if I could finish a book. So I wrote one and then I wrote another and then I wrote another. And really, I think those three books taught me how to write. Some might disagree. 
but none of them were published. And they that were the was, training. They were the training, yeah. I never did a, a course or anything like that. But I think they taught me how to pace something, the importance of character, how to structure, all those things, for me, had to be learned just by doing it, really. Which brings me on to your last object, which is a book, in fact. It is a book. And this is a book that I wang on about furiously to anybody who will listen because everybody knows the book National Velvet in relation to the film starring the very wonderful Elizabeth Taylor. But if you read the book, you'll discover quite a a different story and it's far funnier, it's more nuanced. But most of all, it is a really radical feminist book. And I, I say that hoping that people won't be put off by me describing it like that. But what it is essentially, and this is what marks it out from a lot of literature aimed at young girls today, it is a book about a scrawny, kind of complicated young woman who is encouraged to do an absolutely extraordinary athletic feat against a bunch of men. I mean, Mm. you know, the Grand National is the toughest race on earth. But what it is at heart is a story about a mother facilitating her daughter to achieve something miraculous and against all physical odds. And I read it as a child and loved it because I was a scrawny child who was obsessed with horses. And then I read it again at about the age of 35 And it blew me away because I hadn't expected it to be funny and kind of irreverent and a bit odd. And now I probably read it about once every year to 18 months and I get something different out of it every time. And I would just encourage anybody to read it. You might think you know this story. You do not know this story. And it's absolutely worth a read for something that was written in 1930-something. It is an absolutely modern piece of literature. I'm going to read it. Now, am I right? that you've just been riding in the Kentucky mountains. Was that research for a book? It was was research for a book. I can't say too much about the book, but it's very different. It's based on historical events from the last century that took place in eastern Kentucky. And it's a lot more interesting than I can let on now, but it's, Mm. it's got quite a strong female element. And I heard about this story and I did some research and there's not a lot of information. And so I thought, well, the only way I can do this is to go out there because you need to smell the smells and speak to the people and do all the things. I was quite nervous before I went because if you Google this place, what it comes back as is East Kentucky is not just the state that is having the most problems with opiate abuse in the US, but the town is literally the nexus of that point. And it was such a good example of not necessarily believing everything you read because I drove over there. I drove over with a friend who did the driving for me so that I could do the researching and taking pictures and everything. And I also took her because I knew she would ride with me into the mountains because it's quite remote. And it was extraordinary. It was actually one of those life-changing trips. I I fell in love with Kentucky. I fell in love with the people in a way that I had totally not expected to. Yeah, I've learned a lot. And even the people who were plainly struggling with some form of addiction and very, very poor, there's a lot of poverty in that area. It's sort of trailer park on trailer park. But they were storytellers and they were charming. And this was things that I didn't expect from the trip. Well, we're near the end, unfortunately, but I want to know what's next for you then. Is it this book? Uh, It is. That's the big one. And then I've got a few scripts that I've written for other books that I've written that are with various studios. So we're kind of hoping that one of those will 
Because you, you actually the, wrote the screenplay. I did write the screenplay for me before for, you. Yeah. yeah, me before you. So are you going to be writing more screenplays for these then? I have. Uh, yeah, have. I've done. This Busy lady, tired. and the holiday is next as yes. well in the new year. There I is believe. a holiday in the new year. But um, yeah, so I've written screenplays for Paris for One and One Plus One, which are both with different studios. And then somebody else has written the script for Last Letter, which I really hope will finally make it to lift off. Well... Thank you so much for joining us today and best of luck with all of those projects and with the holiday, the well-earned holiday. (laughs) Thank you so much, Connie. New from Penguin Random House Audio. Immerse yourself in the streets of Georgian London in a world where a merchant, a mermaid and a courtesan's lives become entangled and steer dangerously off course. Jonah Hancock's counting house is built wedge-shaped and coffered like a ship's cabin whitewashed walls and black skirting, beam pegged snugly to beam. The wind sings down Union Street, raindrops burst against the window pane, and Mr. Hancock leans forward on his elbows, cradling his brow in his hands. Rasping his fingers over his scalp, he discovers a crest of coarse hair the barber has missed, and idles over it with mild curiosity, but no irritation. In private, Mr. Hancock is not much concerned with his appearance. In society, he wears a wig. He is a portly gentleman of forty-five, dressed in worsted and fustian and linen, honest, familiar textures to match his threadbare scalp, the silverish fuzz of his jowls, the scuffed and stained skin of his fingertips. He is not a handsome man, nor ever was one, and as he perches on his stool, his great belly and skinny legs give him the look of a rat up a post. But his meaty face is amiable, and his small eyes with their pale lashes are clear and trusting. He is a man well designed for his station in the world, a merchant's son of a merchant's son, a son of Deptford, whose place is not to express surprise or delight at the rare things that pass through his rough hands, but only to assess their worth scratch down their names and numbers, and send them on to the bright and exuberant city across the river. The ships he sends out into the world, the Eagle, the Calliope, the Lorenzo, cross and recross the globe. But Jonah Hancock himself, the stillest of men, falls asleep each night in the room in which he first drew breath. The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock is a spellbinding story of curiosity and obsession by Imogen Hermes Gower. Filled to the brim with intelligence, heart and wit, it's available to download from Audible, iTunes and Kobo from the 25th of January 2018. Hi Penguin Podcast listeners. If you enjoyed this, why not try Live Life Better from Virgin and Penguin Living. Whether at home, work or play, this podcast aims to do exactly what it says on the tin. Help you live life better. I'm Melissa Hemsley. Every fortnight, I'm joined by inspiring authors and experts on subjects from productivity to fitness, relationships and happiness. With insights and practical advice, our amazing guests will be talking you through simple life hacks. They'll be introducing you to pioneering new thinking, all while sharing their own stories of trial, error and discovery along the way. One of the things I do each day, which might sound a little bit weird, is I give myself the gift of a daily death pause. And what I mean by that is I sit and I, just for a few minutes, and think about my own mortality, the fact that I may not 
be here forever. And I write about this in this new book of mine, Carpe Diem Regained. And in my daily death pause, I don't just think of myself you know, lying in a coffin, you know, sort of dead and pale. I do little experiments like one I call the, the dinner party of the afterlife. So make sure you subscribe to Live Life Better with me, Melissa Hemsley, on Apple Podcasts.